This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking this morning at that first paragraph in chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2 verses 1 through 4. About 20 years ago, a lady by the name of Linda Stone, who was an executive with both Microsoft and Apple, coined a term in an article she wrote. It is continuous partial attention. CPA, continual partial attention. She makes sure in this article that she distinguishes this from multitasking. Multitasking is the desire to do multiple things at a time in order to be more effective and maybe more efficient. That's not what she's talking about. When she talks about continuous partial attention, she's talking about paying partial attention all the time. Meaning, never giving anything or anyone your full attention, just always giving partial attention. This is something others had talked about in a sense before this, but since she wrote that article, there has been all kinds of study that has been done on this and attention given this, particularly by psychologists. And they're mainly thinking about the way in which computers and our phones are literally changing our brains. That we live in a generation that is now called the distracted generation because we find it more difficult to concentrate than ever before. Even the idea that as we're sitting down, maybe to do some work or to write a paper, and we're writing and we're concentrating, then there's a ding and an email pops up, and we go to that for a little bit, and then we go back to this. That our phones are constantly giving us alerts, and even we're having a conversation with someone, you might be talking and they don't have their phone out, but their wrist vibrates, and they just kind of go like this, and look back at you, and then kind of look down here for a while, to which you say, I know you didn't just hear me, because I saw you read that email on your wrist. We find it very difficult to give our full attention to anything. I'm reading a book right now called Deep Work. And this book talks about a formula for quality work. That if you want to do real quality work, it's the combination of two things. The amount of time spent and the intensity of your focus. Nothing will determine the quality of your work in every area. Relationships, school, more than the amount of time you spend and the intensity of your focus in that time, that's what determines the equality of our work. Now, the reason this whole issue is a problem is because there are some things that need our full attention. Some things need our undistracted attention. Some things deserve more than continuous partial attention. School. Work. Relationships, husband, a wife, children, conversations, sermons, and Jesus. Jesus deserves more than our continuous 
partial attention. And the saddest part of this is that we're in the habit of paying continuous partial attention to things that need our continuous full attention. There are times in which we're just given a little bit of attention that things that need much more attention. And that's really what this passage is about. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 is about paying attention. It's also about the consequences of not giving Jesus our full attention. Now, you take this paragraph in light of what we saw last two weeks in chapter 1, and we have to because it starts with the word, therefore, then really the point of this text in light of chapter 1 is simply this. God has spoken. Pay attention. God has spoken. (laughs) So pay attention. Now, if you have a copy of God's word, which I, I hope you do, and if you don't, I hope you will make it a habit to bring one. This is a text that is making a logical conclusion. It's more deductive reasoning. It's explaining something to us and making a point. And it does this three different times. And we see this logical progression from three key words. I want to encourage you to to write these down or to mark these in your Bible. The first is therefore. That's the first word of verse 2. Therefore. And then in the middle of verse 1, the word lest. Do you see that? I'm reading from the ESV. The word lest. And then the third word is the word for in verse 2. The logical progression is therefore, based upon what has been said, here's a command. If you do not follow this, lest this is going to happen. And then finally, if you do not follow this command and do not heed the warning, here is what is going to happen as a result. That's the logical flow of this text. Let's look at it together as I read it. If you're there in Hebrews 2, say amen. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? If we declared it first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So it begins with that first important word, therefore. Based upon what happens in chapter 1, chapter 2 begins with one command. That's it. And everything in the text revolves around that one command. Sometimes people will preach this text and they put all the emphasis on don't drift away. But the command is not don't drift away. Don't drift away is what happens if you don't obey the actual command in the text. And the command in the text is this, pay attention. Pay closer attention. But he says, he says therefore, this is the application because there's no commands in chapter 1. And chapter 1 is telling us this. God has spoken. He's spoken in many times and he's spoken in many different ways. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke by angels in many times, in many ways. But in these last days, the days in which we are living in now, God has spoken one way and he has spoken through his ultimate word and that is his son, Jesus Christ. In these last days, God has given us his final word and the word is Jesus Christ. Meaning what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said 
the work and the ways, the words of Jesus, all of that is what God is communicating to us. And there is nothing more important than what God has said to us through Jesus. And I love the connection here between the fact that it says in chapter 1 that Jesus is much superior. You see that in chapter 1, verse 4. It says he is much superior. He's much superior to anything. He's much superior to everything. There is nothing more superior than Jesus. And so what is our response to a much superior Savior and a much superior salvation? The answer is simple. Much attention. A much superior Savior should get much superior attention. So flowing out of all of that in chapter 1, he says this. Now you have one job to do. You have one responsibility. Taking everything that it says about Jesus and is this. Pay attention. Pay much closer attention. Now that little phrase right there is made up of, of two words in the Greek. One of them is the word pay attention. The word pay attention is a nautical word which means to moor a ship. Meaning to tie a ship to something so it doesn't move. And this is going to be important to get this word picture in our mind because he follows it all the way throughout the text. But to moor a ship means to secure a ship, to dock it, to tie it up, and to make sure it doesn't move. So he says, I want you to pay attention. I want you to be close. I want you to be secure. I want you to be, in a sense, tied to Jesus. And the words much more are not really necessary. I mean, to say pay attention to moor a ship means that you've tied it so it's not going to move. That's enough. But this often, often happens in the Greek. In order to emphasize something more, it adds a word which is that word, much closer. In other words, don't just pay attention, pay much closer attention. It increases the intensity of the word. It lets us know that this is no small matter. It heightens the intensity. It's saying that this is not about continuous partial attention. This is about giving your undivided attention to something. There has to be moments in which without distractions, Jesus is getting your attention. Without distractions, you're focusing on him. You're closely connected to him. And then it says this, pay close attention. Look at those next words, to what we have heard. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, it is in a sense a reference to everything that was said in chapter 1. But it's really more than that. Because later in this text, in verse 3, he's going to say, don't neglect your great salvation. Well, chapter 1 was really about the Savior, and the implication of that is that Savior is the one who has brought salvation. So what the author is saying to this Jewish audience is, there was a wonderful message that was delivered to you by angels, but Jesus is better than angels. There was a message that was delivered to you through Moses, but Jesus is better than Moses. You had a great high priest who sacrificed for you every year, but there's a greater high priest. There is a greater king, a greater prophet, and he has come to bring for you a greater and more secure salvation. And those who have acknowledged their sin and acknowledged that they were born spiritually dead with no spiritual heartbeat, and spiritually disobedient, constantly wandering away from the Lord, and spiritually doomed, headed to hell because we were born in our iniquity. But you have seen that there is a sacrifice sufficient for your sins in Jesus Christ. And Jesus has sacrificed his life, not only that he might pay for your sin, but that you might get his righteousness. And those who come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ are those who've seen a superior Savior and received a superior salvation. That, that's what they heard. So he says you've got to pay close attention to what you have heard. To the superior savior and a superior salvation. 
Now, there's a couple of, of, of cross-references that I think are helpful here. The first is Hebrews 12.1, if you want to write that down. That's where it says, keep your eyes on Jesus. As you're journeying in this marathon, which is the Christian life, this daily moment-by-moment battle, it says that in order for us to keep on track, that we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus. I grew up reading the New American Standard, and that says, fix your eyes on Jesus. I like that, because this idea of putting your eyes on Jesus and not letting them be distracted, giving him your full and complete attention, you fix them upon Jesus. I think another helpful word picture is John 15, 4, where Jesus says, abide in me. He says, I'm the vine and you're the branch. And if you want to bear fruit, you've got to abide. We'll just take that word picture. It means that if we want the life of Jesus to be in us and to work through us, that's all determined by how closely connected we are to Jesus. So if we're a branch that's kind of just hanging on and and barely connected, there's a little bit of life that flows through, but not a lot of fruit. But if you're closely, completely connected to Jesus, then all of the life of the vine is coming through. And that's the image that God gives us. That we need to be as closely connected to Jesus as possible, giving him our utmost attention. So what he's saying is, if what I said to you about Jesus is true, in Hebrews 1, then your response is simply this. Pay attention to it. Give it your full and utmost attention. I was thinking as I was studying this week, the times in which I feel convicted at home by looking at my phone while my family is there. This is why recently I got rid of all social media. It's, been, it's just good for me because I realized I was sitting in a chair in my living room looking at what is going on in somebody else's life that frankly I don't care that much about while there's six other lives around me that I'm not looking at. It's the most ridiculous and foolish thing you can imagine. Here I am with lives around me that matter, but I'm not thinking about their lives. I'm thinking about these people's lives. Now listen to this. If my family deserves much more attention than these other people do, how much more does Jesus deserve that attention than anything else in your life? And so the point that he's making from that command is simply this. You must pay close and continual attention to Jesus. You must pay close and continual attention to Jesus. But then he uses that word, lest. So what happens if you don't? All right, let's just say you walk out of here and you choose not to pay close attention to Jesus. Well, this is the warning. This is one of seven warnings in the book of Hebrews. It says, lest we drift away from it. So listen, the command is not don't drift away. The command is pay attention. And if you do not pay attention, the natural consequences are going to be that you will drift away. Now, it's the same word picture, okay? So we started this word picture with pay attention, which means to secure a boat and to to moor the boat. He says, well, if you don't do that, the logical conclusion is is that that boat's going to go away. So if you go to the lake and you're out all morning and then you decide to go in for lunch and you take the boat and you put it next to the dock and everybody gets out and then you turn the boat off and you get out and you don't tie down the boat, you're going to come back and something's going to be wrong. And what you're not going to say is this, I can't believe this. Somebody moved the dock. You're not going to say somebody moved the dock because that would be ridiculous. Nobody moved the dock. You just didn't connect the boat to the dock. The dock has not moved. Listen to this. Jesus doesn't move. 
He's there. He's consistent. He's steady. He's always close. We move. And so when we're not tied closely to Jesus, what happens? We always drift. You know what drifting is? Drifting is the natural result of doing nothing. So let's just just say you do nothing in your Christian life. All right? You just just doesn't get any attention. You, as the word uses in a minute, you just neglect it. So you go a day and you don't give any attention to Jesus. You don't think much about him. You don't spend time on the word. You just go a day without being closely connected to Jesus. What's going to happen? Well, logically, you're going to drift away. And that word away is significant. Because you don't go a day without Jesus and drift closer to him. That never happens. You know this, right? Like we always drift away from him. We never drift closer to him. So just a day without Jesus. Uh, Two days without Jesus. Just imagine what happens to a boat if it goes an hour without being closely connected. Or a day or two days or three days or four days. It is not going to get closer. It is constantly going to get further away. And so it is with our lives. Any moment you're not connected to Jesus, you will drift away from him. I keep thinking about that story in Matthew 14 where the disciples get in the boat. It's been a long day of teaching and Jesus says, y'all go ahead and get on the boat. Go to the other side, I'll meet you there. What they didn't know is that Jesus was going to meet them there by walking on the water at three o'clock in the morning, which is what happened. So they're on the boat. It says they're uh, really making difficult time because there's a storm and it's completely dark. And all of a sudden they see a figure, just imagine a figure coming towards them, hovering over the water. They think it's a ghost. It actually says that. And Jesus says, fear not, it is I, don't be afraid, it's okay. And then Peter, I love Peter, simply says this, well, if it's you, let me walk on the water to you. To which Jesus says, all right. So Peter puts his leg over the boat and he stands up on the water and he's standing on the water. This has got to be an unbelievable moment. And he starts to take steps and he gets closer and closer and closer. But then the text tells us he noticed the wind. And he's noticed the wind, he got afraid, and he began to sink. And the reason is, is because the natural result, if you stand on water, is to sink. You don't naturally stand, you naturally sink. The supernatural thing is to stand. And so at the moment in which he got distracted from thinking about Jesus and putting his faith in Jesus, and instead began to think about the wind, he began to sink. So it is with you. Our lives are filled with winds, the wind of school, the wind of work, the wind of family, the wind of temptation, the wind of besetting sins, and all of these winds are moving us further away. They're causing us to sink, and the only way we stay close and stay above the water is if we continually focus on Jesus Christ. The reality is, I would say almost none of us, very few of us, intentionally reject Jesus. We just ignore him and we drift away. So as he's making this logical progression, the first thing he says is this. He says, you must pay close and continual attention to Jesus, lest, he makes the next point, if you do not pay attention to Jesus, you will drift away. Pay close attention to Jesus. If you don't, you will will drift away. And then he makes his third point with that word for. Do you see that in verse 2? Here's, here's the reason why you need to heed this warning. This is, this is serious business here. 
We're, we're doing serious business this morning. Why should you heed the warning to stay close? Not only because you're going to drift away, but if you continue to drift away, there are consequences. He says this. Now, he says, for the message declared by angels, which we talked about, that's a reference to the old covenant last week, proved to be reliable. So the word that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, that was a powerful word. It was from God. It was uh, trustworthy. It was dependable. It was binding on people, meant God had spoken, and they had to respond. But look what it says. It says, if they didn't respond, if they rejected the word of God that was declared by angels, then every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. So we know this, right? This is the whole story of after the people leave Sinai, they don't remain faithful, they grumble, they complain, they don't inherit the promised land, that entire generation misses it. So again, he's just making this point that that was an incredible word that came directly from God. But they rejected the word because every time we reject the word, we're rejecting God himself. You don't just reject the word, you reject God. And the result of that was is they received a just punishment. It wasn't an unjust punishment. It was the punishment that we received when we rejected God. So they missed out on all the promises. So they're saying, think about this. If they got a word from God brought by angels and they disobeyed and then were punished, how much more would we be punished if the word we got was the very son of God and we rejected it? So that's what it's saying. So how shall we, verse three, escape if we neglect such a great salvation. I really think there's a, a connection between great and reliable. So the old covenant was reliable. But this is, is more reliable because of what he says next. Well, how do we know that this is reliable? Well, look at what it says. It was declared by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. And God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the last message was given by angels and delivered to Moses. And then Moses gave it to the people. And there were some signs and wonders that happened. But this, this is a greater word. This was delivered by Jesus Christ himself. And he said this to us. And then we heard it from those who walked with Jesus. And then he proved that this was true by signs and wonders and miracles and healings and tongues. All of those things that existed to show that Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah. The Old Testament promised that the Messiah was going to come with these kind of signs. So this is an even more reliable word. So what's going to happen to us if we neglect such a great word knowing that they neglected a great but even lesser word and they received punishment. What's going to happen if you neglect your salvation? I say, what, what does that mean? What, what does it mean to neglect your salvation? I mean, that word neglect is important because neglect feels like drifting, doesn't it? You don't spiritually die by most of the time shaking your fist at God and saying, I don't care about what you say anymore. You usually die of neglect. But how do you neglect salvation? All right, let's think about this for a minute. When we talk about salvation, we almost always talk about salvation in past tense, meaning 
That's something I did. I gave my life to Jesus at VBS when I was five. I gave my life to Jesus in high school at camp. I gave my life to Jesus as a freshman in college. I gave my life to Jesus as an adult. I did that. That's something I did. We always think about salvation. And I, I did that. I, I've already settled that. I've got that done. But the Bible doesn't talk about salvation in just those terms. The Bible talks about salvation in terms of something that happened in the past, something that is happening in the present, and something that will happen in the future. So you'll open up to the Bible and you'll find where it says, you have been saved. You'll also go to find passages that say, you are being saved. And then you know what? You're going to find verses that say, you will be saved. So let me tell you how that works. There has to be a moment in every person's life when they make a decision for Jesus Christ. Some of you this morning in this room, in the main room, you need to make a decision for Christ. You have to stop playing games with Jesus and make a decision to say, today I am going to choose to trust Jesus and follow him. There has to be a moment in which you make a decision. The Bible says when you make that decision, you are justified. You're justified. You're declared righteous. You receive the righteousness of Christ. Now God the Father sees you through the lens of the sacrifice of Christ. But it says this. Those who have been saved, justified, are going to continue to be saved. A word we call sanctification. Meaning it is the current, day-to-day outworking of that decision you made. So that decision you made leads itself to a life of decisions. There's evidence, there's progress, there's desire, there's a hunger and thirst for righteousness, there's conviction of sin, there's love for God and love for others. You are being saved. You're working out, Philippians 2, what God has worked in you. So God works something in you, you're working it out and you see evidence. And those who are sanctified will be glorified. You're going to be saved. You're not fully saved in that sense because There will be a day in which Christ will return and all of your sin will be gone and you won't have to deal with it anymore and all of the tears will be gone and all of the consequences will be gone and you'll be glorified, the completion of your salvation. So here's how Romans 8.30 says it. It says this. Those who have been justified will be sanctified. And those who are being sanctified will be glorified. In other words, those who have made an authentic decision for Jesus Christ will see that decision worked out in the present and fulfilled in the future. Meaning, if you make a profession of faith, and then after that, you just continue to neglect your salvation, and there is no evidence of fruit or perseverance, then you're not saved. I mean, that's the parable of the soils. The parable of the soils, there's two of those who, who spring up. They make a decision, and they even seem excited for a little bit. But after a while, they stop bearing fruit, and they neglect their salvation. And the result is, is they're condemned because they didn't know Jesus at all. Now, you know this is true. You know this. You know people who've made a decision, but a couple of years later, you look and you find a hard time believing that that decision was authentic. We know that this is the case. It happens all of the time. And what it says is this. Those who don't pay attention to Jesus and drift away and continue to neglect their salvation, look at what it says, will not escape. You see that word escape? That word escape there at the beginning of verse 3 is a word that is used throughout the New Testament to refer to the judgment of God. 
really the, the end time judgment of God. So there's a rhetorical question here. How shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? One that was attested to us by Jesus himself and witnesses and signs and wonders. And the answer is, you won't escape. Those who don't pay attention, and those who drift, and those who continue to neglect their salvation will not escape the judgment of God. So here's the logical flow. You must pay close and careful attention to Jesus. If you don't, you'll drift away. And if you continue to drift away, you will be destroyed. That's Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. And you say, well, wait a minute. Is this for believers? Like this couldn't be for believers because one saved, always saved. I, I, I was saved. I made a decision. This couldn't be for me. Can I lose my salvation? Which is a question, by the way, you always wrestle with in the book of Hebrews. To which I'd say two things. Listen to this. So we kind of wrap all of this up. The first one is this. An authentic Christian will at times drift away. Remember the old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Don't you feel it? I said it, I said it last week. We are constantly uh, being drawn away from Jesus. There's constantly something pulling us away from closeness to Jesus. None of us just stay close to Jesus. We will all, in some ways, drift. None of us are immune to drifting. Matter of fact, the opposite is true. It takes continual effort to stay close, doesn't it? Every day, it takes effort to stay close to Jesus. Continual effort, the kind of effort that we're called to give when Paul says, work out your salvation. How can he say, work out your salvation? Because it's something that God is still doing in you. And that moment of justification leads to a life of sanctification. So God has already worked something in us. We just have to work it out. We're not working for our salvation. We're working out what God has already done inside of us, true Christians will drift from time to time. But the second truth is this. True Christians heed the warnings and come back. True Christians heed the warnings and come back. This is a real warning and it's for every one of you here. So you can't take this warning and go, well, that must be for unbelievers. No, listen, the way in which God keeps you faithful until the end is by text like this. So what concerns me is if your attitude is this, well, once saved, always saved, pastor. No, I did that. I remember I got VBS. I have a certificate. I, I had a friend the other day that sent me a picture. Uh, he, he just thought this was ironic. His baptismal certificate was in his fireproof box. Something ironic about that. It doesn't matter how many certificates you have or Bibles that were given to you or decisions that you made or aisles that you walked. Hell is filled with people who made a profession of faith but didn't genuinely know Jesus Christ. And if your attitude is, well, I did that, I'm good, and you're just kind of coasting on some past decision, that's an evidence that, that you may not have made a real decision for Jesus Christ. Because what happens in the life of a true Christian is you hear a sermon like this and you say, oh God, I, I don't want to drift away. I want to be close. Not because I feel this weight that I got I to gotta save myself, but because you've been saved and you want to be close to Jesus. Because you've tasted what it's like to be close to Jesus. And it's good. 
and you love him and you want more of him. And you hear a passage like this and you don't just rest in a decision. You say, oh God, I'm not working to be saved, but oh God, there's nothing I want more than I want you. Someone that is casual about their relationship with Jesus Christ and casual about drifting is incredibly concerning. And this is Matthew 18. Matthew 18 gives the parable of the lost sheep. You know, there's 100 sheep and one wanders away. And the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes and gets the one. Do you know Matthew 18 right after that is church discipline? Church discipline is, is really this process that is just you. Anytime you notice someone that's not walking with the Lord and you confront them. And then if they don't respond, you take two or three. This is, by the way, this should be a normal, listen to me. This should be a normal habit of your life. This is like normal habit. You're approaching people if you feel like they're drifting away and you call them out on it, just in love. Galatians 6 says, in a spirit of gentleness. And then hopefully they come back. And if they don't, take two or three. Because you love them so much, you're not trying to expose them. You love them. And then if they don't, you tell the church. And you know what happens? The whole church goes after them and begs them to come back. Let me tell you the reason this works. It works because the one who is confronted in their sin and is a real believer heeds the warning and comes back. But it says if they don't heed the warning, you remove them from the church. Why? Because if you go after them and they get more hardened and they get more rebellious and they get more arrogant, then they're proving they didn't know the Lord at all and they go further away. So you remove them from the church because there's no reason to think that they're a believer. Those who know the Lord and drift away, heed the warnings and come back. Listen, let me say Absolutely, those who are true followers of Jesus Christ will never be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 6, 37 says, those who come to me, I will not cast out. Jesus says in John 10, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, I will not lose one. So it is possible for us to rest in what Christ has done for us, that I am not working in order to make God happy. But someone who really knows the Lord continues to work because they just love Jesus. And the sad reality is there will be a lot of people in hell who never were openly just rebellious to Jesus. They were in the room. They heard the stories. They might even made a decision at camp. But they just never stayed close to Jesus. So this morning, some of you need to make that first decision. Some of you need to make that first decision to say, Lord, I'm ready. I want to give my life to you. I'm committing to you. I want to be close to you. I want to know you. And some of you are drifting. And God's just calling you back. And if you feel that you're drifting and you're ready to get close, that's such a wonderful sign. What a gracious God who would bring you to a place like this today to warn you of drifting so you don't just keep getting further away. What an unbelievable God. You're saying, come back, come close. The life of a believer is one of continual repentance. We just keep turning back to Jesus moment after moment, day after day. And if you're weighed down by some guilt or condemnation and you're a believer, get rid of that and just come back to Jesus. Because God has spoken. And he's spoken in a much superior word which demands your much closer attention. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.